If you're able, uh, let's stand together as we read from God's Word. We'll be reading this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through uh, 13. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from God's Word? Pay careful attention. This is the Word of God. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 8. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. O Lord, in your light, we see light. We ask that you might illumine our hearts, enlighten uh, the eyes of our hearts, that we might understand your word, that we would receive it with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. So we pray that the Holy Spirit who inspired these things to be written and who has preserved them throughout the ages would plant them deeply in our hearts and cause their growth for your glory. We pray in all of this that you would help us to see Jesus, our great deacon, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, This month, we've been going through a brief series considering officer qualifications. Uh, We've considered the, the origin of the office of the deacon at the end of July, as we just happen to be in Acts chapter 6. Uh, where the the office of the diaconate is established in the life of the early church. Uh, A few weeks ago, we began to consider elders from 1 Timothy 3. We looked at the the qualifications of character for those who would desire to serve Jesus' church as elders. Last week, we looked at the particular work of the elder, which Peter describes as the work of a shepherd caring for the flock of God entrusted to him. Uh, And today, we look again at deacons, at their character, and their ministry uh, here from 1 Timothy 3. Uh, Next week, we'll kind of wrap all of this up as we consider uh, the the whole church, the ministry of the whole church, uh, working together as the body of Christ, because the ministry of the church is not just entrusted to the elders and the deacons, uh, but Jesus has gifted every member of his church for ministry, and so we'll consider that next week. As we consider this passage this morning, uh, let me begin with uh, a bit of an illustration uh, to help us kind of get into it. Several years ago, a a friend of mine who was a a pastor in the community was in a a difficult situation in his ministry. He was uh, serving a church whose commitment to uh, biblical teaching about certain things was beginning to shift and uh, uh, move off center, off point, if you will. And, and, and his commitment was different 
than, than what his denomination was beginning to express. And so at a, a significant cost to himself, uh, he, he took a public stand for biblical truth in opposition to what his uh, denomination was beginning to advocate. Um, and he was, of course, ostracized for this, became somewhat of a pariah, lost his job uh, serving in this church. Uh, and in the course of this, this conflict, as he was still seeking to serve the church where he was pastor, he was visiting with a member of the congregation who, if I recall the story correctly, was pushing back a little bit on his position and the stance that he was taking. And his response to that church member has always stuck with me as they, they were pushing against him, uh, perhaps uh, encouraging him to compromise a little bit or, or uh, you know, change his mind. Uh, he said to them, I am your servant, but you are not my master. He viewed himself and his pastoral role as a servant to all those who were part of the Church of Christ where he was serving. But he served a greater master. He served Jesus, and his primary commitment was to serve in submission to Jesus as his master. That has always stuck with me because that uh, kind of sense of identity, of how he described himself with that word, servant. Uh, Servant is one of those titles which uh, perhaps we might look down on in other places, but in the Bible, in the New Testament in particular, uh, servant is one of those titles that very well captures the identity of all believers and is the primary role of the deacon. In the scriptures, uh, the servant is exalted because Jesus is himself the great servant who humbles himself and is exalted at God's right hand. And so for all of us as believers, we are called to be servants and especially those who serve in this role of deacon. It is the primary role of the deacon in the Church of Jesus Christ to serve the body of Christ holistically, uh, serving both physical and spiritual needs as they focus on meeting uh, physical needs, natural needs that deacons, that the members of the congregation may have. They serve in this way on behalf of Christ who is himself the great servant. And they serve in this way to encourage the whole body of Christ to serve one another with the gifts that Christ himself has given to the body. And so as we consider Paul's words to Timothy this morning and and the characteristics, the qualifications of the deacon, uh, we'll also look at the ministry of the deacon and the importance of having a servant's heart, both for those who serve as deacons and for the rest of the body as well. Uh, notice Paul is, Paul is kind of on a roll. He's continuing his thought. And so we look first as we see the character qualifications of the deacons, the character of a deacon in verse 8. There's much overlap with what he has said already about the elder. Notice verse 8, he says, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or, or fond of sordid gain. Uh, He's continuing to lay out qualifications for office in the church, just as he did with those who would serve as elders. Uh, And so we see some repetition here between the qualifications of the deacon, the qualifications of the elder. And so I'll summarize 
uh, just with a few points, the qualifications that he highlights here for the deacon. It says that the deacon is supposed to be a man of dignity, one who is worthy of respect in his character. Others see him, they know him to be a trustworthy individual, one whose word can be trusted. Later in the passage, Paul will highlight that the deacon is also like the elder to be beyond reproach, uh, to be blameless in his character. Again, not perfect, uh, but sincerely walking in genuine repentance and faith. Or you could summarize it this way. The deacon is to be a man who has both a sincere profession of faith coupled with a sincere demonstration of faith. Look, if you will, at verse 9. Paul describes the deacon as one who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, that description of mystery there, this is, you're not to think of like Scooby-Doo mystery where it's, you know, we've got to figure it out uh, by being crafty and sneaky like uh, the, the Scooby-Doo mystery van. Uh, rather, in, in the Bible, the mystery, a mystery is something that's been divinely revealed from God, previously hidden, but now revealed to God's people. So when Paul talks about the mystery of the faith, that's kind of a shorthand way of saying all that God has revealed in Christ as the fulfillment of all promises, all prophecies, all of it has come to an apex in Jesus, and the mystery has been revealed. And so the deacon is to be a man who has embraced Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. He is to be one who has a sincere profession of faith. But Paul notes also that he's to be one who has hold, who holds to this mystery with a clear conscience. It's genuine. It's it's sincere. And the way you know it's sincere is because it is demonstrated in his life. His words and his actions line up. His his faith and his practice fit together uh, hand in hand. Uh, I, I think about um, one of our, our members who is now uh, in glory with the Lord Jesus. Uh, some of you will remember David Jones, uh, who, who also was known as Floyd David. And then I believe at work, at least if I remember correctly, he was known as Deacon. Uh, that always stuck with me because it was a way of saying that David's character, and those, those of you who knew him, I think, can attest to this, that David's character uh, sincerely demonstrated his embrace of Jesus Christ, so much so that his nickname was Deacon, Servant. Others with whom he worked, and, and I'm not sure where the name came from, but I know at least at work he was called that, but others saw him and, and knew the gentleness of his character and his humility and his, his genuine embrace of Christ and his care for other people so that this nickname was a fitting nickname for him simply as a believer, uh, let alone as an officer in the church. A deacon is to be one who has both profession and demonstration of faith. One writer says that without the life, the profession is empty. You say you believe, show it in the way that you live. Let life and faith go hand in hand. Let character and conduct fit together. He is to be a man who has sincere faith demonstrated in his life. And this demonstration is in some way to be publicly known. 
publicly known and recognized. As Paul indicates in verse 10, these men must also first be tested. They need to be living their lives in such a way that others can see their character, others can see their profession of faith demonstrated in their lives so that they can evaluate it for themselves. In part explains why we do something like officer nominations and why we talk about officer qualifications. Part of our encouragement to the congregation as you consider the men that you would have to serve in these offices is for the congregation to be able to look and the session to be able to evaluate uh, the faith and godliness of those men who are nominated to these offices. There, there is uh, possibly nothing more important than the faith and character of those who would serve in leadership in the Church of Jesus Christ. As, as goes the leadership, so goes the church. And, and that's true in lots of ways. The church very often reflects the strengths and the weaknesses of its leadership. Uh, that's, that's generally true just by default. But the church benefits from the godly character of its leaders and can crash and burn if the character of those leaders is not godly, is not sincere, does not demonstrate genuine faith. Which is why in this whole list of qualifications, as Paul talks about the elders, as he talks about the deacons, as he talks about the women, we'll we'll address in just a moment, all of the things that he lists there, except for one, all of it focuses on godly character, except for being able to teach. It's the only skill that Paul highlights for any of the officers for the elders, the ability to teach. Everything else has to do with a heart shaped by Jesus Christ, embracing him in faith and demonstrating that in their lives. Paul points out a few areas where this faith is to be demonstrated in their words, not to be double-tongued, deceitful, saying one thing, doing another, kind of like the the children's challenge, the son who who said, oh, yeah, I'll do it, and then he didn't. They're they're to be men whose words are... uh, tested and proven as genuine and trustworthy, not double-tongued. They're not to be addicted to much wine. They're not to be controlled by substances, uh, but rather to be controlled by the Holy Spirit working through the Word. They're not to be fond of sordid gain. Their relationship to money should be above reproach, not questionable how they handle their finances, or in the case of deacons, as is often the, uh, the case, handling the finances of others, handling the finances of the church. There to be men who have integrity in that. And Paul finally points to the family as, again, a qualification. As Paul in verse 12 says, they must be husbands of one wife, good managers of their children and their own households. The home, Paul is pointing out, is the proving grounds for fidelity in all other cases. Is he faithful at home? Is he faithful to that first commitment that the Lord has given him to his wife and his children if the Lord has provided that? If he's faithful there, then that is strong indication that he will be faithful in other areas as well. The home is the proving grounds of all fidelity. And so the character of the deacon, he's to be committed to the faith and demonstrating that faith in his life. Uh, Let's look now at the ministry of the deacon, the ministry of the deacon. 
Now, this passage doesn't outline details of what the deacons ought to do other than describing the work of the deacon in terms of service. Notice uh, at the end of verse 13, those who have served well. The, the word is just the same word for deacon. Deacon just means servant. And so the, the primary work of the deacon, the ministry of the deacon, is that of service. Uh, we saw this in Acts 6, that the deacons are called to a ministry of service and sympathy. In Acts 6, the ministry of the deacons focuses primarily on the widows of the church, those who would have been most particularly vulnerable in that setting, uh, those who were in, in need often of help from the, the rest of the congregation. But historically, the ministry of the deacons has been uh, even, even broader than just ministry to widows. In the very early church, we have accounts of uh, churches sending out deacons to oversee the work of, of uh, women who would be in the streets looking for children who had been abandoned. Uh, this was often the case in kind of those early centuries where, where children were often not valued and, and, and sometimes abandoned for various reasons. And the church, through the ministry of the deacons, was right at the front line of, of rescuing children in need and providing for their needs uh, through, uh, through the women of the church. The church, from its earliest inception, has been interested in mercy to those who are in need, and deacons have been the ones overseeing that. In John Calvin's day in 16th century uh, Geneva, the deacons were largely in charge of care for the poor and the sick, whether widows or not. They established hospitals uh, run by, uh, overseen by the deacons, and then very often run by uh, many of the women in the church to care for the poor and the sick in Geneva. The church uh, is called to serve those in need, both within the congregation uh, as an obligation of Christian love and mercy, and then very often those outside of the congregation as a means of witness to the mercy of Jesus. And the deacons are called to oversee that ministry. We should point out uh, just two, uh, three things additionally. Uh, one, this is a calling. Just like serving as an elder uh, is a calling, the service and ministry of the deacon is also a calling. And so part of the task of the congregation is to, to look for those men who have those gifts and who seem to be called by God to serve in this area of ministry and to recognize that uh, in nominating and electing them to serve. It's a calling from God to serve. should also say... Uh, that the work of the deacon, the office of the deacon, is not a stepping stone. It's not just a transitional office on the way to an elder. Now, there's overlap in the two, and so that often happens. But we, we need to remember that the office is a, a unique calling unto itself that serves uh, a need within the church. Very often it's kind of viewed as, you know, just a, a stopping point on the way to serving as an elder and, and, that, um, and that that's its primary function. But we've had men in our congregation who have served as a deacon, served as an elder, and then realized that they're really, they really were called and gifted to serve as a deacon. 
And it wasn't a matter of rank. It wasn't a matter of status. Uh, it was a matter of calling. They were called and gifted to serve the church of Jesus through the ministry of the deacons. So it's not a stepping stone. It's not just a transition on the way to elder. We've had others who have served as elders, served as deacons, served as elders. Again, there's, there's overlap, but it is a unique office unto itself, a particular and distinct calling, and one for which we ought to be deeply grateful. And finally, uh, just to point out that the ministry of the deacons involves women in, in, in an essential and important way. Notice verse 11, Paul uh, 8 through 13, he's talking about deacons and then kind of the meat of the sandwich right in the middle of the two slices of bread, if you will. He, he inserts this verse about women and lists some qualifications for them in verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And then in verse 12, he jumps back into talking about deacons. Uh, this is an oft-disputed verse in terms of how people understand what Paul is talking about here. Why does he insert this verse about women right in the middle of listing the qualifications for deacons? And there's traditionally been kind of four ways people have interpreted this verse. Now, this is not a lecture, so just bear with me, but I think it's important for you to understand the options, and then I'll, I'll tell you what I think about it. Uh, some have viewed this as uh, speaking of women included with the deacons as a whole. So you have deacons, and there's men and women who serve together as deacons. Others have um, seen this as a separate office of female deacons, or historically it's been called deaconesses, uh, separate from but related to the office of the deacons. So you might have elders, deacons, and then a separate office of deaconesses. Some have been understood it that way. Others have understood the women here uh, to be a reference to women who assist in the ministry of the deacons who are men, which makes some sense. If the deacons began their ministry in ministering to uh, widows within the church, it makes sense that women would be involved in that ministry. Just, uh, just makes good sense. They would understand things better than the men who are serving in those roles. And then a fourth way that it's often interpreted is that this is a reference to uh, specifically to the wives of deacons and probably a nod to the wives of elders. My best take on this is that it's some combination of the third and fourth view. Paul is clearly not outlining a specific separate office. Uh, he only spends a, a very short amount of time on this, and there seems to be no other indication in the New Testament that this is some separate office of uh, a female deacon or deaconess. He's clearly making a distinction between the women here, the deacons, and the elders. And so it doesn't make sense to say that these women are included with the deacons in this case because he's, he's clearly distinguishing them from the deacons by referring to deacons at the beginning of verse 8 and then again in verse 12. Another way to think about it is this. If Paul had written verse 11 after verse 12, it would be fairly clear that he was referring here to the wives of deacons. The same word that's used to describe women uh, in this verse uh, is used to describe wives two other times in this same passage. And it would be unusual for Paul to change the meaning of the word 
so rapidly. And so in context, this seems to be either the wives of the deacons as they assist and serve in ministry with their husbands, or simply women who are assisting the ministry of the deacons in the church in an important way. Thank you for bearing with with me on all that. The point of all of that is to say that in the diaconal ministry of the church, the women of the church play an integral and very important role in carrying out that ministry. And I think it's worth noting that this would have been a radical position in the first century in which Paul was writing. Women did not have a high status in the first century. Uh, they, they were often not, not given positions of authority or high rank. And yet in the church of Jesus Christ, you see kind of a, a broadening and a flattening of many of those distinctions that existed in the society and the culture that surrounded the other Christians. So that Paul can say something like, in Christ Jesus... There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Meaning that in Christ, those distinctions that matter in the culture and in society and and those distinctions that give rise to rank and status and value are different in the church because in Christ, we are all welcomed as beloved children of God In Christ, we are all gifted by the Holy Spirit with gifts for ministry. Some of those gifts are carried out through the offices of the church, but not all of them. But every single member of the body of Christ, male, female, young, old, doesn't matter. If you belong to Jesus, you have been given gifts for ministry and are called to use them for the building up of the body of Christ. This was a radically different concept in the first century than from the culture that surrounded the church. We may read it with different eyes today, but I think it's important to understand the context in which this was written. Paul here is elevating the ministry and the gifts of the women within the church, calling them to the same character that he calls the deacons as they seek to serve uh, alongside them in diaconal ministry. Or to put it another way, Male leadership in the church in no way minimizes, excludes, or removes the need for women's ministry. All members of the church are called to serve as the people of God. Elders need their wives in their role as elders. Deacons need their wives in their service and ministry as deacons. And deacons are not called to perform every single act of diaconal ministry. Rather, they are called to oversee it, to encourage it in the congregation, and to find men and women who have gifts of mercy who can serve in carrying out that ministry entrusted to them, to encourage and to equip the church to carry out this ministry among the body. So the ministry of the deacon. Let's look finally at the, um, the value of a servant's heart. Uh, Notice Paul says in verse 13, those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and a great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's something valuable about serving well in the church of Christ. There is a great standing, a reward, not in terms of rank or status, 
but confidence. Confidence in growing in Jesus through serving others. And so Paul here is highlighting the deep importance of having a servant heart, not just among the deacons, but among the whole of the congregation. You can think about it this way. Jesus gives grace to his people. And that grace comes often in the forms of gifts for ministry. Why does he give those gifts of grace to his people? Does he give those gifts so that they will stop with the one who receives them? Or does he give gifts for ministry so that they will go through you for the benefit and the good of others? I think you can see here the value of a servant's heart. A servant's heart is one that receives from Christ grace and gifts for the benefit of others. It does not hold on to tightly the things that are given, but looks for and seeks to meet the needs of those who are around them. You think about it this way. This is an old illustration. I don't know where it came from. You think about the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is a source of life and flourishing. The Jordan River starts north of the sea, flows through the sea. The sea is fed by a spring, and then the the Jordan River flows uh, south out of the Sea of Galilee. And this is a place where there is an abundance of life, or at least there used to be. I think the waters are beginning to recede a little bit. But in general, this is a place where water flows. Life flourishes in the Sea of Galilee. Why? Well, in part because water flows through it. There there is an openness, if you will. It receives life, and then it gives life. It does not hold on to it and stop the flow that is coming to it. And yet, by the time you get down to the Dead Sea, at the very southern tip of the Jordan River, what do you find? You find a body of water that is so filled with salt that nothing can thrive in it. Nothing flourishes. Plants, uh, 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 animals, nothing can live because it all just stops in the Dead Sea. A servant's heart is like the Sea of Galilee. It receives from Christ all that it needs, is humbled in that receiving, and recognizes this spontaneous act of generosity in giving to others and seeking to serve others in need. And as a result, there is growth, there is life, because it is the life of Christ at work in the deacons and in the body of Christ uh, that has a servant's heart. But if you receive those things and you hold on to them, you become stingy or perhaps cynical towards helping those in need and begin to, to make reasons why you shouldn't help people, why you, well, maybe that person in need got there by their own fault and they don't deserve help. They don't deserve to be uh, served in any way. And you just Accidentally with whatever you have received. Uh, then we dry up. We dry up like the Dead Sea, and there's no place for life and flourishing there. Jesus calls each of us to have a servant's heart, following after and imitating Jesus, who himself called uh, his whole ministry that of a servant, who came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life for, as a ransom for many. If you have received that from Jesus as he has served you, 
uh, then we also ought to walk in that same manner of seeking ways to serve one another, opening up our hearts and our hands as we imitate Jesus Christ, our great servant. Would you pray?